The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. What'd you find out about that sound man? Uh, well, uh... He's probably got plenty. He's been out chasing leads. Yes. Without me. No. CK, are you feeling okay? I just I have a little headache. It's fine, Clark. You've decided it's best to work on your own. I've decided you're right. No argument. Uh, uh, just just a minute here. Now, is there something going on between you two I should know about? For those of you who haven't read the papers, I'm the one who brought Superman to his knees. In celebration of that momentous event, I'm creating a new tax. A sound tax. The rate? 50% of all money in Metropolis banks. The money will be bagged and waiting outside each branch by 9 a.m. tomorrow. Oh, and one final message to Superman. Try and stop me. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, July 26th, 2018. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Was that a sound tax or a sound tax? (laughs) Two different things, though not necessarily exclusive to one another. Today we'll be focusing on climate change and taxation. And yes, I'd like to hear about a sound tax, but as far as taxation goes, carbon taxes, in whatever form adopted, pricing, cap and trade, whatever, is not a tax based on a sound premise. Taxing carbon is no different from taxing sound, and our governments, to one extent or another, are already doing both. How? I'll tell you right after reminding you that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and, of course, all of our archive broadcasts. Now, I was inspired... <laughs> Nay, I was compelled to do this show by a panel discussion I heard on a local AM radio station this past Friday on the subjects of climate change and carbon taxation. And if ever there was an example of a discussion about a completely unreal crisis that we're all being forced to contend with, that had to be it. I'll be sharing that conversation and my own reactions after first establishing a few principles for the context of this whole issue. You may have heard the saying, fines are a tax for doing bad, and taxes are a fine for doing good. Well, there's a lot of truth in that old saying that can be applied to our subject matter today. So to get to our story about taxing sound, yes, it's true. We already do tax sound, and for two opposite reasons that everyone can relate to right away. If you break a noise bylaw, for example, and cause noise not legally allowed, you can be fined. Or on the other hand, if you pay for permission to make noise not normally legally allowed, such as, oh, for example, an outdoor rock concert in a park during the summer months. We always have a lot of controversy about that here in the city of London. But then you'll pay a tax. 
uh, either through licensing or by permit to be able to raise your sound limits to the permissible level. But in both cases just cited, the reasons for fining or taxing sound are actually based on a sound principle, pardon the constant pun, that sound principle being the protection of life, liberty, and property, and establishing those rules. In both of the sound cases, sound bylaw infractions or sound licensing permissions, the principle revolves primarily around property rights. When one person's actions interfere you know, unjustly with another person's right to life, liberty, or property, then it is the duty of the referee to step in and enforce the rules. In this case, the referee is the relevant government, and the tool of enforcement is force itself, administered either by a police force or the armed forces, (laughs) you know, people with guns. Now, enter the climate change controversy and the carbon tax debate, and we're back to another reliable old saying. It ain't so much what people don't know that gets them into trouble, it's what they do know that just ain't so. Oh, how many times have I said that on the show? Here we go with yet another illustration of how people will take positions on knowledge that just ain't so. The mythologies believed about climate and weather make me think that we're starting to live back in the Stone Age again. We're, you know, we no longer live in a time of common knowledge. We live in a, in a time of common ignorance. To witness most of what we're seeing in the news media on this, the common ignorance is truly reaching a crescendo. So today it's all about climate change and taxation, two subjects, by the way, that should never, ever have even been uttered in the same sentence let alone fused together by the manipulations of the political left. But that's where the popular misconception sits. Wanting to fight climate change is, in my humble opinion, almost the definition of irrationality. At least to the degree that one actually believes they're fighting climate change and not just, you know, making up a story to justify increasing taxes for other purposes like social programs. Last week, you might recall, we discussed the importance of stories in determining, defining, and uniting entire cultures and civilizations. Myths and legends of the Greeks and Romans, the stories in the Koran and the Bible, and of course, Star Trek, where we got to see the face of evil. But stories also fuel movements and secular belief systems, not so unlike the stories that fuel the great religions of the world. The carbon tax movement story, quote-unquote, is the story of human-caused climate change and that the chief culprit is carbon dioxide, which is what causes climate change, and humans create carbon dioxide when they produce energy or fuel the engines of industry. Now, I caught this item in the June 30th National Post. 30 years of wrong. No justification for self-punitive nonsense of the Paris Climate Accord, written by Conrad Black, in which he makes some necessary distinctions regarding the discussion we're about to hear. Quote, Every sane person is opposed to the pollution of the environment, and there is a practically universal consensus to reduce automobile exhaust emissions, ensure industrial smoke goes through scrubbers, and that all contaminated water is thoroughly treated before being returned to nature. 
Every serious person agrees that we must, as a species, show extreme vigilance in exercising man's unique ability to tamper with and alter the environment. We are the stewards of the world and its environment, and there are few who would dispute that. Until comparatively recently, we have not taken that responsibility very seriously. The Industrial Revolution had been thundering in Europe and North America for nearly a century and in Japan for half a century before even basic conservation, such as national parks, got its green foot in the public policy door. There is no justification whatever for the self-punitive nonsense of the Paris Climate Accord, where the administration of President Barack Obama committed to garrot American industry with costs of tens of billions of dollars to reduce carbon emissions, even as the world's principal offenders, China and India, and most other countries, solemnly declined to moderate their darkening of the skies and their putrefaction of the waters until their economic revolution involving billions of people had been completed. The lessons of all this are clear, but most of our political and academic leaders are so far over-invested in defending against something that is not happening. They continue to call for the sacrifice of others, the deindustrialization of the West, the self-imposition of a wholly economic torpor, so in the post-industrial silence we can all contemplate the pristine serenity of self-impoverishment. <laughs> wow. Economic suicide is only tempting to those who have forgotten what pre-industrial life was like. End quote. Powerful commentary and amazingly spot-on summary of the big picture of the Paris Climate Accord. It's also a good summary of the conversation we are about to listen into right now. Shortly, I plan to vent my total frustration and disappointment with the following roundtable discussion that was heard on CJBK AM 1290 London this past Friday morning. Around the table were show hosts Ken Eastwood and Lisa Brandt, who both see themselves as decidedly on the left, and they were joined by Kate Graham, the recent though unelected candidate for the Ontario Liberal Party in London here during the recent provincial election, and Andrew Lawton, another recent though unelected candidate for the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party in that same election and here in the City of London. So though very frustrating, this was a very revealing discussion about the the things that we've been highlighting on this show over the past several weeks. And I'll unload right after we kick off with the voice of Kate Graham. Climate change is a big issue, right? I would argue it's actually one of the uh, biggest issues that's facing our city, our province, our country, and so on. And, you know, I get that no one likes paying taxes. I certainly understand that. But the reality is that if we don't do something uh, about addressing climate change, then nothing happens and things continue to get worse. And frankly, I'm a lot more worried about the long-term impacts on our environment than I am about, uh, you know, kind of the details of these tax regimes. So in, you know, and there are all kinds of forms of carbon pricing. And I'll be frank, I'm very in favor of any form of carbon pricing that's been proven to actually work. Uh, I was a big fan of our cap and trade system in Ontario. Not only did it actually uh, reduce uh, emissions, and uh, it also generated a lot of revenue that was reinvested into things that help people live greener lives. I think it was a really smart policy. Uh, but, you know, there's always room for improvement. And if a better policy came along, I'd be all in favor of looking at it. But just to scrap these things, because it makes for good sloganeering or good populist politics without any real plan, 
I think is just disgraceful, to be honest. And listening to that interview today, and I, I actually thought it was a great question at the end about, okay, you don't like the carbon tax? Fine. What is the plan? And the answer was, well, hopefully other countries will do things and maybe they can be more innovative. That's the opposite of a plan. That's just not good enough. Well, so what is uh, what is the plan, uh, Andrew? Do you know what the plan is? When you're talking about this issue, looking at other countries is incredibly important. I mean, the percentage of carbon emissions that come from Canada in relation to China, India, Russia, Japan, the U.S., South Korea is minuscule. And that's not to say you can completely you know, just throw it off to someone else. But we're fooling ourselves if we think that taxing Canadians is going to rein in the actual problems facing this issue. So you do have to look at it in a global context. And again, I understand that uh, people like Kate and and the former premier would agree with that, that it's not just an isolated issue in Canada, but we are never going to tax our way into a solution. And and that was the challenge with cap and trade. We saw a very real economic impact to that and and to carbon pricing when we've looked at studies in other countries as well. And we need to find a way forward that works, if we are going to tackle this, not by discouraging business and investment. I guess that's that's part of the issue is find a way forward. um, Because when you have a plan, at least you have a plan, instead of saying, well, that plan sucks, let's get rid of it, and then we'll figure something out. And that's, I think, what one of the concerns is. Well, I also don't think you should leave a bad plan on the books just because you haven't come up with something better yet. Ontario was a great province before cap-and-trade, and Ontario will be a better province now that it's gone. So cap-and-trade did a lot of really important things in London, uh, things like investing in cycling lanes, uh, provided funding for social housing units, for example, to be retrofitted so that they're not only have a lower uh, environmental footprint, but also a better environment for people to live in. All of those programs, and I could go on and on, all of those are now gone. And so again, in lieu of a plan, not only to address those problems, but the bigger issues around climate change, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, it wasn't a perfect system. I can't think of a single policy that I wouldn't like to see some improvements to. Uh, It doesn't mean that we just walk away and and say, well, you know, other people are worse and so maybe we don't need to do anything. I I think we got to do a lot better than that. It's 2018. This is one of the biggest issues facing our country. And uh, also to the earlier uh, speaker, Jim, you know, I think he was a lot more optimistic than I would be about uh, where the country is headed on this. I think our prime minister has been very clear and very strong. And I'm proud as a Canadian that we're showing leadership in this area. And so, you know, if he's thinking that, uh, you know, Ford seems to have little support around that table, and uh, that was pretty clear yesterday, I don't think that we're going to see a change as a country. And I'm, I'm really thankful for that. It's the one quite, thing that gives quite me the contra- Quite the contrary, though. I mean, you have now four of five or four of 10 premiers that are against Justin Trudeau's federally imposed carbon tax. And if Jason Kenney wins in 2019 in Alberta, you'll have five, and those five premiers representing about two-thirds of the population. So yeah, You have big th- ones like B.C. and uh, Quebec both saying it's great. It's yeah, been really but then you've got Alberta and Ontario, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and PEI that are going to be saying no, and that's not insignificant. But the current framework is that each province can come up with a plan as long as they meet certain targets. I actually think that having a lot of latitude for provinces to be innovative, to put in place systems that make sense in their own context makes a lot of sense. Saying, you know, we have no plan and we're just not going to do anything. Again, not good enough. But but plans aside, even some of the projects you're talking about locally here um, in London, Kate, um, 
Andrew, if if are obviously those those I mean cycling lanes and uh, infrastructure, green in, um, infrastructure like that are good things. Will we continue to? F- would do you think an Ontario government in the future would continue to fund those? And if so, where would that money come from if not from a cap and trade program? The problem when you talk about these investments, and I use that word in, in quotation marks here, is that it's all come off of the backs of companies, and and we know that in some cases there are giant corporations where it's not a huge deal to buy carbon offsets, and then there are a lot of other smaller operations that are are penalized, and average families are penalized by cap and trade at the fuel pumps in the price of goods and services. So while I'm sympathetic to the merit of a lot of these programs, we have to understand where that money was coming from. And it it was coming from taxation. It's funny, I I read an article this week about how San Francisco got to almost zero waste, and they did it by penalizing people for doing the wrong things, for putting stuff in their garbage that they shouldn't, and and all that kind of thing, and it worked. It got them to where they wanted to, because frankly, if I'm going to have to pay more because I'm doing something that hurts the environment, uh, I, I pay five cents for my plastic bag. I do all those kinds of things, and it makes me stop buying plastic bags and using plastic bag. I think that kind of approach works. This is what politics is all about, right? It's often, you know, it's not easy. There aren't simple solutions. This is a big problem. If we're hoping it's going to just solve itself, I think that, you know, we're we're kidding ourselves. We have to do things that cause people to change their behaviors. It's that simple. You know, are there financial impacts on businesses? Yes. Do we need to make sure that we're mitigating the effects of those? Yes. But I think the much bigger threat to families and businesses in Ontario and in Canada and beyond is the risks of not addressing climate change in a serious way. That is a big long-term risk to families and to businesses. Look at the plastic straw discussions that are going on right now, though. Mm-hmm. You've, you've got major companies, Marriott, Starbucks, restaurant chains, like I believe Cara Foods, that are, are saying, you know what, we're not going to offer straws or we're only going to do it on request. And then you've got similar governments in Vancouver and California and some European countries that are talking about bans. The reason they're talking about that is because there's already a a contingent in the population that says, you know what, straws are an unnecessary uh, contribution to environmental problems. Businesses are leading the charge on that because consumers want it. And I think that if we're looking at businesses and them needing to be more responsible on this, that's something they're going to respond to for market reasons. And I, I fail to see that government, or I fail to see how government is the one that has to uh, put it there and how the federal government can put a gun to the head of the provinces and say, I mean, you, you say, Kate, and that's a very valid point of, oh, you know, you get to choose the, you know, which poison you drink, but they're still telling you to drink a poison. Uh, uh, <laughs> this is why I'm glad that <laughs> we have an opportunity to hash these things out. Uh, I think a gun to the head or a poison, uh, I would say that kind of language, to be honest, uh, does speak to this. So... Sorry, I need to back up. I think using language like that, it's fear-mongering, right? And it distracts us from the real issue here. The issue here is that we have a climate that needs serious attention. And governments need to lead by making tough decisions and making clear statements that actually cause us to do things better. That's what politics is all about. And so, you know, I don't think that it's a gun to the head or the prime minister asking premiers to drink a poison to say, we have a shared issue here that's affecting our entire planet, and we need to work together to do something about it. There is a lot of fear and a lot of strong language in this issue that I think is intended just to make people feel like, you know, they're 
somehow being taken advantage of. This is an issue I would agree with you is not just about government. Every citizen also has a responsibility to do things uh, differently in terms of their own life choices to reduce their impact on the environment. But adding fear and difficult language and being threatening, to be honest, uh, I don't think is helpful on this route. This the, is one where the, we need to work together. The Premier of BC says all the fear mongering and, and all of the worry and rhetoric that happened before they did cap and trade uh, or carbon tax um, just didn't come to fruition. So uh, there's always a lot of a lot of that prior to something to taking hold. I think I think a lot of the fear mongering is coming from the global warming alarmists that are talking. You had Rachel Notley saying people are dying because of global warming. Kathleen they Wynne are. used very similar. So there's fear mongering right there. But it's actually talking, so happening. So me, me, pay, me paying more tax is supposed to save people from dying in the streets. Andrew, do you believe in climate change? I, of course, I believe the climate's changing. Okay, and what do you think we should be doing about it? I don't think we're going to tax our way into the solution, and that's where the okay, issue is. Okay, so you is. don't think that, but what do you think we should be doing about it? But that, that, that's the whole point, though, is that just because I reject what's being forward, put forward as the solution doesn't mean that I have the answer. But I can tell you this is not moving us closer to the goal that you're trying to put us to. At its core, do you think we should be punishing companies that are big polluters in any way? I think that companies are always going to be uh, involved in the solution and, and you need to engage them rather than imposing something on them. Well, I, I think it's naive to expect that big corporations are going to police themselves yeah, over the uh, and instead of making money. If they're, they're given a choice between polluting and making money or not polluting and not making money, I think we obviously know what choice they're going to make. And this is, again, what, one of the things I liked about cap-and-trade. Again, not a perfect system, but it allowed businesses to make those choices. So they could choose more innovative practices that reduced emissions. They could buy up credits if they wanted to and wanted to continue with their current... Pr- it gave the choice to the businesses, but with an ultimate shared goal of saying, we own this problem collectively and we need to work together on it. And I think that's a really good policy instrument to use. I think you two are dynamite. And <laughs> thank you both for being here. Oh, that's uh, it. Let's take the whole half hour next time. <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> exactly. All right. Kate Graham, thank you. Oh, thank you. Andrew Lawton, great to see you as always. always. Just unbelievable what I heard there. I'm not even sure where to begin. There's so much meat here to digest that it's difficult to find what we might call a starting point. I suppose I could start by making it clear that I disagreed with all four of the panelists, and for a very fundamental reason. They were debating in a vacuum of relevant information and knowledge about the whole subject and the whole debate. It was just astonishing. Not one of them addressed the key concerns. So let's go through all these issues, and there are a number of them. Let me start with CO2, carbon dioxide. The whole discussion we just heard should have been stopped in its tracks with the single acknowledgement that carbon dioxide is not a pollutant and is in fact extraordinarily beneficial to life on this planet, to all forms of life. It is a natural component of our atmosphere and human activities addition to it is virtually negligible. CO2 is not a greenhouse gas. It is the consequence of heat generation, not its cause. And it's that simple. And there's a lot of evidence to this. You'll be hearing some of it today. And we've, we've played these arguments to death from various sources, authorities, scientists, people who know over the years. Then there's the whole issue of climate change. Kate Graham religiously and repetitively and, and solely kept repeating her belief, without any evidence to offer, that climate change is the biggest issue facing our city and our province and our country. 
And that she said, nobody likes to pay taxes, but if we don't do something about addressing climate change, then nothing happens and things continue to get worse. Well, the only thing that makes climate change a big issue is the insistence of those with political motives. Climate change is not a political issue, even when politicians insist that it is. Because their issue isn't the climate and never was. Climate change is not an issue, okay? It is a planetary condition to which all living species on the planet must adapt. Because in the vain attempt to fight climate change, we then fail to adapt and perish as a consequence, especially if we've squandered our resources on the former attempt, making it more difficult to adapt when necessary. And I have to ask, what does worse mean? What does she mean when she says that things are going to get worse if we don't do anything? Is worse two degrees higher, or is it two degrees lower? Does it make a difference? More importantly, what would better look like? Would it look like, you know, the Garden of Eden at the time of Adam and Eve, or sunshine every day with showers only when needed? No stormy weather, no extremes, no new records, no, no new highs or lows? Is that how we would know when we reached the goal? <laughs> The very notion is insane. Climate change is a meaningless political term. What is the politically correct temperature? <laughs> and why? Can you tell me why? What's the correct level of humidity and why? I happen to know the answer, but you never hear it from the lefties anymore. Because the reason that they used to give, or the time period that they wanted for the correct temperature was, of course, at the beginning of the Industrial Age. Because this is all an attack on industry, and on capitalism, and on productivity and production. That's what it's always been about. The UN came out and said so explicitly, nobody listens. Graham insists that there should be a plan to deal with climate change in the absence of all these tax schemes. But how to deal with climate change has already been known for centuries. You adapt to it. World wineries adapting to climate change, reads the headline of the agricultural section of the National Post. From the Associated Press, reporter Andrew Seisky writes, out of Dallas, Oregon, quote, The Van Duzer Corridor, the lowest point in Oregon's coast range, has become a go-to place for wineries and vineyards, hedging their bets against climate change. Winemakers and vineyard owners in a 246-square-kilometer section of the corridor have applied to become the newest American viticultural area, with the wind its predominant feature. Growers and winemakers say they are seeing the effects of climate change as temperatures rise, with swings in weather patterns becoming more severe. So they're taking action, moving to cooler zones, planting varieties that do better in the heat, and shading their grapes with more leaf canopy. As areas once ideal for certain grapes become less viable, causing earlier harvests and diminished wine quality as grapes ripen faster, once iffy areas and sites like the Van Duzier Corridor are coming into their own. End quote. So you can see what's happening there. And there we have one simple example of one industry adapting to climate change, which that particular industry, by the way, has had to do for centuries. Now, imagine if they instead decided to fight climate change, like instead of adapting. 
Well, they'd have to wait centuries to see any results from their carbon taxes. <laughs> Hope that wine ages well. You can see the whole insanity of the very notion. Then there's the issue of pollution. I earlier cited Conrad Black's clear point about pollution and the necessity to minimize it and what it is versus what the whole CO2 debate is about. But pollution is not an environmental problem. It's a property rights issue and has nothing to do with the climate change debate, and yet we keep hearing about pollution. Lisa Brandt pointed out how she read an article about how San Francisco penalized people for making waste, for putting stuff in the garbage that they shouldn't, and all that kind of thing. And it worked, she said. I should have to pay more if I'm doing harm to the environment, and that I don't buy plastic bags anymore because it works, end quote. Well, I don't think she doesn't buy plastic bags because of the fine. I think she doesn't buy plastic bags because she's a lefty and has no idea how her not buying plastic bags has absolutely zero effect on the environment. And more to the point, she's talking about pollution. Then there's the green socialism. In lamenting Premier Ford's backtracking on cap-and-trade, Kate Graham said that Cap-and-trade did a lot of good in London, like investing in cycling lanes, providing social housing units to be refitted for lower environmental footprint. All of those programs, and I could go on and on, those are now gone. Yeah, she could go on and on, because all kinds of things you can spend people's taxes on. But why does it have to be necessarily so? I mean, you can pay for all those dubious state-run and finance social engineering projects using regular taxes, like income taxes, property taxes, sales taxes. After all, isn't that just what carbon taxing ultimately is? It's just a fancy sales tax that, that has another condition attached to it, and that's controlling production. We don't need a fairy tale of fighting climate change to justify social programs of any sort, whether I personally agree with them or not. And then there's this scary issue of priorities. Kate Graham said that she's far more worried about the long-term impacts of our, on our environment than about the details of these tax regimes. She's in favor of all forms of carbon pricing that have proven to actually work, etc. You know, since the devil is always in the details, Graham's lack of concern for the details of the tax regimes is telling. She's basically telling us she doesn't care about people. The environment, whatever that means to her, has greater value. She's in favor of any form of carbon pricing that works. Works at what? Reducing CO2? Well, that's not happening. Changing the climate? That's not happening. She's talking about it works to generate revenue for greener lives. Well, yeah, you can always steal money from people. <laughs> any tax will do that. I, I think Kate suffers from climate derangement syndrome, as if from one of those idea pathogens that we learned about from Gad Sad on our show a couple of weeks ago, or maybe from the emotional plague so well described in Willem Reich's excellent mass psychology of fascism. She just religiously kept repeating her prayer that climate change is the biggest issue, which is laughable on its face, it's a non-issue, but she never gave a reason for why, other than... Just because. Well, the real issue is human survival, first and foremost. Otherwise, there are no issues. Lisa Brandt pointed out how the Premier of BC says that all of the fear-mongering and worry and rhetoric before carbon tax just didn't come to fruition afterwards. 
So is she saying then that British Columbia has solved its climate change and CO2 problem? Really? I don't think that's what she was saying at all. Because if so, I want to know what the politically correct temperature and humidity is out there. Of course, it's obvious that BC's carbon tax has, not, has done nothing to fight climate change. It has increased government revenues for the redistribution of wealth, and that's what it's, that's what it's expected to do. The same argument has been made about Ontario's recent minimum wage increase. See, all the rhetoric and fear-mongering hasn't come to pass. Yeah, but the damage has been done. And the fact that, a, that an economy always improves after you've wiped out the last generation of some industry doesn't mean that you ju it justified you wiping out those, th that industry. I wonder how these folks would even know what to look for in terms of knowing that a program has been successful. Have any of them ever taken a stroll through down London downtown lately? Every time the government spends more of the citizens' money, there's a corresponding increase in poverty, drug addiction, crime, homelessness, and all of the other ills associated with centralized government planning. Another thing I found a little bit disappointing was Andrew Lawton's argument, the, the tack he took. For his part, Andrew Lawton kept making economic and business arguments, which are a complete side interest to this issue, even though those in business, yes, always bear the great brunt of taxation in all forms. And I can't really say that Andrew said anything that was not true, unlike his three opponents. But his arguments fell on deaf ears because they were all about economics and business, not about making the necessary moral judgment, which is what his opponents were doing to him. I mean, he brought up plastic straws and that private businesses are already changing habits. Businesses are leading the charge because consumers want it. Well, well, that's not an argument. And this response doesn't address the reality that, yes, government must enforce pollution violations. Of course it must. And straws can be polluting if not disposed of properly. But to allow this discussion to overlap into the CO2 debate, which is not about pollution, but about permissions, permissions to produce through cap and trade. I mean, that's to lose the debate before you've even started. I think Andrew took the wrong tack on this issue, including his basic agreement with the various social spending generated by the carbon taxes, and, and also agreeing that climate change was some sort of problem that needed a political fix, which he didn't have or offer. Well, obviously you didn't have one because there's not one necessary, Andrew. <laughs> By making it all about business, he also gave Graham the in to say, quote, that's what I liked about cap and trade. It allowed businesses to make those choices. They could buy credits if they wanted to continue with their current, er, it gave the choice to the businesses. It's really funny how she couldn't bring herself to say that polluting was perfectly okay as long as you pay those who give permission to do so. And again, what, what this has to do with climate change is anyone's guess, since CO2 has nothing to do with climate change. And she says, but with an ultimate shared goal of saying we own this problem collectively and we need to work together on it, and I think that's a really good policy instrument to use. End quote. And of course, that policy instrument is a gun, because policies are enforced by governments. Which brings us to the moral crux of our story. When persuasion fails, use force. 
Now, after having agreed with Lisa Brandt that punishing polluters in San Francisco worked, quote-unquote, Kate Graham added, that's what politics is all about. This is a big problem. We have to do things that cause people to change their behavior. It's that simple. Are there financial impacts on business? Yes. Do we need to make sure we mitigate the effects of those? Yes. Well, there you go. We have to do things. And we not only have to do things, we have to fix the things that we're going to break while we're doing the things. That's going to cost money. What things? Why not just say what you mean? When persuasion fails, just use force. The thing you're doing is putting a gun to somebody's head. And, and she objected to that when Andrew brought it up. Why? Because that would mean admitting that you are using a gun and poison to persuade others. Which is the truth. But it's not an issue in and of itself. Because if CO2 was in fact a pollutant that was causing untold distress and threatening the survival of life on this planet, then using that gun would be completely justified. But CO2 isn't pollution, and so using that gun in that circumstance is an unjust and an immoral act. Graham responded, A gun to the head or poison? I would say that constitutes fear-mongering. It distracts us from the real issue. The real issue is climate change, and governments need to lead. And on and on and on she goes. You know, on a personal level, I can't help but see it this way. Despite my own explicit knowledge that everything she's saying about climate change and CO2 is false, she nevertheless, out of her own beliefs, because she's never offered any argument or evidence to say what she's saying, is going to pick up that gun of government, point it at my head, and carry out the maxim, when persuasion fails, just use force. I mean, I found every word coming out of Kate Graham's mouth to be utterly offensive in the extreme during that whole conversation, to say nothing of her condescending attitude towards anyone who disagreed with her knowledge of things that just ain't so. Forcing everyone to live greener lives was her sole and only, only objective, and it's absolutely an absurd one. It's meaningless. And remember, in politics, ends and means are never different. They're always the same. The means becomes the end, and the means are the use of force to replace consent. It's the left's way of looking at things. Now here's the right way of looking at the CO2 debate. Here's a segment about CO2 taken from the very excellent October 27th YouTube presentation by John Robson called The Environment. A true story. We've seen CO2 in the atmosphere rise from about 290 parts per million to 400. You can't see either slice on this graph because carbon dioxide share of the total atmosphere has risen in this period by 0.011%. But in fact, environmentalists do not believe that nature is brittle, do they? Don't take my word for it. Here's what the Prince of Wales writes in his little book on climate change. Our planet and its ecosystems run through cycles and loops, for example, the water cycle and carbon cycle. Soils break down plant remains and turn them into the nutrients needed to grow new plants. As is common sense, everything is recycled and reused. In nature, there is no waste. If he's right about that, then nature is not going to turn up its nose at an increase of CO2 in the atmosphere. It is going to use it to grow more plants. And as a matter of fact, there is compelling evidence that the so-called green revolution was partly due to ingenious crossbreeding, but it seems also to have been due 
to there being more carbon dioxide available for plants. CO2 uh, is very important for water economy. We talked about the stomata in plant leaves that you use for dating, for, for, uh, for figuring out uh, what was past CO2 levels. Well, when there are lots of holes, uh, water is leaking through the leaf like a sieve, and so plants then cannot grow in arid regions, they can't grow at high altitudes. So when you look down with satellites today, you can see the whole earth is getting greener, especially the arid regions of the earth, and that's because plants are now growing in regions that used to be too dry for them to survive. Millions of people in the third world are alive today because of increased atmospheric CO2, because Prince Charles is right when he lets down his guard and says, in nature, there is no waste. But that's not the global warming orthodoxy. Instead, the alarmists insist that the so-called carbon cycle was in balance until we came along with our dirty smokestacks and ruined everything. To call the environment resilient and dynamic is not to say that we can afford to do just anything, like dump paint into the lake. We need to be concerned particularly about weird chemicals not found in nature. But CO2 isn't one of those. One of the tricks to which the alarmists have recently resorted is calling CO2 carbon pollution. But saying it doesn't make it so. For decades, organizations like the United States Environmental Protection Agency have been trying to make cars so clean that only two things come out of their tailpipes, water vapor and CO2. When I listen to the news, I keep hearing about carbon pollution, you know, uh, what they really mean is carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is not a pollutant. So that sticks in my crawl because every human being uh, breathes out carbon dioxide. If it's a pollutant, then we're all polluters. You typically breathe out about two pounds of carbon dioxide a day. It's a lot of CO2. And you multiply by the number of people in the world, seven billion people, there's a lot. Carbon dioxide is actually uh, completely natural. It's just like water vapor. It's something that the Earth needs, plants need. They don't have enough compared to, you know, geological averages. Uh, and then, you know, the degree of scientific illiteracy is discouraging. I remember once testifying uh, in Congress and one of the congressmen, a very nice man, represented a uh, suburban district in St. Louis, uh, a Democrat, and he said, uh, well, Dr. Happer, I just can't believe that uh, you say that carbon dioxide is not a pollutant, you know, is it, would you really go into your garage and shut the door and turn on your automobile engine and sit there and breathe all that stuff? And I said, well, no, you have to understand you're talking about carbon monoxide that's different from carbon dioxide. They're, they're two different molecules. and." Uh, he says, really? See, and I'm not blaming him, it's a, an indictment of our school system. So I, I think it's been much easier for the alarmists to uh, uh, deceive uh, the public because the public doesn't know much science. Nobody disputes that enormous quantities of CO2 are cycled between the atmosphere, the oceans, and the land every year, or that human production of CO2 only accounts for about 5% of the natural cycle. 
And yet you can find chart after chart online, revealingly disagreeing about the numbers, but all insisting on the central fact that although natural CO2 is absorbed and released as part of this wonderful dynamic cycle of nature, ours is not. There's something wrong with ours. It smells bad. It tastes bad. It's the processed cheese of CO2 and nature simply can't absorb it. And again, this is not science. Nobody ever explains how a plant knows the difference. Human activities emit about 36 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere each year. The majority comes from burning fossil energy and industrial processes. About half of the carbon dioxide pollution is soaked up by lands and forests, land sink, or by the oceans, ocean sink. The rest, about 16 billion tons each year, accumulates in the atmosphere. There is no convenient hole in the sky for it to escape through. You know who said that? Right, the Prince of Wales in the same book. Isn't he reading his own stuff? And I've mentioned before that when journalists take their eye off the global warming ball, they very frequently report findings that are incompatible with various aspects of the alarmist thesis, including that we have any kind of detailed scientific understanding of what's going on on the Earth. And here is one of these. Even with billions of trees being cut down every year, a new study estimates there are seven and a half times more trees on Earth than previously believed. 3.04 trillion to be precise, or roughly 422 trees per person. Now, if increasing the number of trees, those big wooden things that absorb carbon dioxide as they grow, by a factor of seven and a half doesn't affect your model, it's because your model has no relationship to reality. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it's possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. Check out patreon.com slash justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism, and of course about all things just wrong about the whole climate change debate. So, millions of people are alive today because of increased CO2. Now that is certainly a stark contrast to what we heard Kate Graham suggest. You know, the ignorance of science that was cited is part of the chronic problem associated with the whole climate change mythology. And, and there's no excuse for it. Yeah, it takes a minimal amount of effort to separate the wheat from the chaff on climate change, particularly since politicians are meddling in the science and promoting so much garbage. But our show, Just Right, has had a long history of examining the whole climate change issue, which, as you recall, began as the global warming issue, then was changed to climate change, and then was tied to CO2 as being a greenhouse gas, and on and on. So at a very quick glance, <laughs> on this show alone, we've dedicated at least two or three dozen complete shows, maybe more, to the subject of climate change and CO2. And that began with my own humble analysis of the whole situation that I did on my own, just by using traditional reference materials readily available to me. And you can hear this all still online. All of it contradicted what the Al Gores and all of the other politicians were saying. And all of it proved to be correct over the years, as over time I tested my own conclusions against that of others who embarked on the same path. 
But beyond my own undertakings, I've also had the honor of interviewing and discussing this issue with people who know a lot more than I do, as I mentioned. Dr. Christopher Essex, perhaps the leading authority on this subject anywhere in the world, accessible to us right here at Western University in London. And he's also, of course, co-author of Taken by Storm, and he was, of course, denounced in Canada's Parliament for not being politically correct on climate change, because he was being scientifically correct, you see. (laughs) We interviewed Lord Christopher Monckton, who, with Margaret Thatcher, was right on the front lines of the whole CO2 controversy, and himself discovered... After believing in all of it, how corrupt the UN and all of the global warming propagandists were, and then he and Margaret Thatcher both changed their minds after being quite open to it. This is not just people picking one side and going with it because they're on the left or right. Lawrence Solomon of the National Post, Executive Director, Energy Probe, has long documented the follies of global warming political campaign, and he's, he appeared on our show and discussed many aspects of this that you just won't hear anywhere else. Even John Thompson, our expert in terrorism, also discussed the hidden agenda of the climate change alarmists. So people are not alone on this. And then, of course, there's our own Dave Plum, whose book now entitled Inconveniently Screwed is available for sale and who appears regularly on our show and about whom I'll have a few more comments to make in our closing quarter. And of course, dozens of our past broadcasts have featured other audio bites by well-informed and directly engaged individuals with this whole climate change debate, including the explicit admission by representatives of the United Nations that the whole climate change agenda really has nothing to do with climate change but with destroying capitalism. They literally came out and said it. You will find all of these straight-from-the-horse's-mouths testimonies on past broadcasts of this show. There's just too much credible information that can refute all of the climate change propaganda to squeeze into a single one-hour broadcast. And, you know, one of the sad truths about the whole climate change controversy is that truths generally get stated only once or very few times, whereas lies are continually repeated because repetition is part of the propaganda cycle and is necessary to get people to believe in them. And personally, I hate repetition. I mean, that's what podcast archives are for. So maybe someone should direct some of the relevant Just Right podcasts to the likes of Joe Rogan, whose deference to authority over actually knowing the facts continues to be how too many people resolve seemingly complex issues. Here's Joe Rogan in his interview with Candace Owens, who, you know what, the more I hear her, the more I like her. Just, I fell victim to the idea that, like, it was progress, it was progress, it was progress. We have to care about the environment. It was progress. And it's like, no, like, we've been losing. America has been losing. And Donald Trump understood that in, in a way that I didn't. And you I don't thought... don't think we have to care about the environment? Like, what no, you... no, not even a little bit. Like, not even a little bit? No. Do you, okay, let me, let me clarify this. I don't throw trash on the ground. Like, okay. I'm, I'm not saying, like, we need to, like, you know, trash the environment. Like, um, but do I believe in climate change? No. You don't believe in climate change. Well, I think the climate always changes, I guess is what I should say. Do I believe that this is like, you know, an issue that um, 
is being that, that is global warming which they've changed conveniently they got rid of the word once scientists started disproving it now they only say climate climate change um no I, I think that that was just a way to extract dollars from americans i don't at all believe they had no actionable plan it was great for trump to get out of that deal it was terrible okay but this is an incredibly complicated subject right and if you would have to talk to a bunch of different scientists right. and see how they gather data and see what they understand about co2 levels and what's the danger of them right. and what can combat it and what could not have you done all this or no. do you so take I think this flippant opinion no, it's, based it's, listen, on the I'm not, party this line? is not this wouldn't be the hill i died on right but it's not about the part i just genuinely I, i've read a ton about it but what i would not read? be able to i would not be able to come to you and say like this is my strong opinion but here's like the easiest way to say this right okay. the fact that there is a disparity in the science community about whether or not it's real is enough to it's very little yep. very little disparity but, most 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 scientists most the, the vast majority agree that human beings are negatively affecting climate change. Yeah. The vast majority. Yeah, I, I don't. I just. I just don't think so. You. So you think that the very few scientists that disagree with yeah. the consensus are the ones that are correct. Well, I think if something is, it, it's it's either subjective or it's objective, and, and there are objective truths, right? But it's subjective if you're saying mm -hmm. that there are some. And I don't think there's very little. There are some that aren't, don't get paid to go on TV. There are some that are not Bill Nye, who mm -hmm. are not funded scientists, um, and and that has been a whole. Well, Bill Nye's not a scientist. <laughs> I know. He's not. He's <laughs> a. Broke my heart when I found a out. Science. Propagandist, yeah, but that's the that's the point. He's and, and a science. No, that's not a good word. I don't I mean, think I mean, Al Gore is a scientist. He's not. Welcome, carbon dioxide, CO two, less than zero point zero four percent of Earth's air. In every 85,800 molecules of air, shown here as rice grains, just 33 are carbon dioxide. Of these 33 CO2 molecules, 32 are from nature. Carbon dioxide from human activity, that's farming, transport, mining and industry, is only 3% of Earth's annual CO2 production. 85,800 molecules of air, 32 molecules of CO2 from nature, and one from us. 32 essential for life, one supposedly causing catastrophic global warming. No, it's not. The truth is carbon dioxide is essential for all life on Earth, crops, forests, food, humans and animals. It is resident in the atmosphere for as little as four or five years before being recycled into plants, soil, rocks and oceans four years, not 100 or even a thousand as you're being told. But wait, it's crazier. Of this tiny amount of human-made carbon dioxide, Aussies make just 1.5%. Australian carbon dioxide is one molecule in every 5.7 million molecules of air. The government and the Greens have stated their tax is designed to reduce our carbon dioxide production from one molecule in every 5.7 million molecules of air to one molecule in every six million molecules of air. For that, they're introducing a carbon dioxide tax designed to cost you $72 billion in the first five years. Measurements cited by the government themselves reveal temperature changes 
precede changes in carbon dioxide levels. Temperature sets carbon dioxide levels. Carbon dioxide does not determine the temperature. Variation alone in nature's carbon dioxide production is estimated at four times the total human production. Nature alone determines carbon dioxide levels, not humans. And that was Malcolm Roberts speaking on behalf of Australia's Galileo movement way back in 2012. You know, it's interesting how the left, and in this case, Joe Rogan, is so rarely challenged to bring any facts to the table, and never does while continually citing false authorities, the oldest political game in the book. While anyone on the right, the people with the facts, they have to cite chapter and verse about every scientific principle and nuance that just might qualify them to be taken seriously on their opinion. And by the way, that disparity in the scientific community that Candace Owens referred to is quite real. And you'll find one or two references to it in our own past broadcasts. And the numbers of scientists who do not agree with official climate change propaganda are startling. It's just amazing. Now, in closing, I just want to bring this item to your attention, which was sent to me by Dave Plum, our own resident expert, who doesn't like to call himself an expert on the whole climate change issue. And he sent a copy of his book, Inconveniently Screwed, to all 76 members of the PC party who are now sitting in the legislature. And he wrote to them, quote, Now that you're in a position to rule Ontario with a majority mandate, it is incumbent upon you to rule wisely and responsibly. Knowledge is a key component of wisdom. The PC party ran on a platform of ceasing to waste taxpayer money in the futile war against Earth's climate. Fulfilling this one will almost certainly result in an avalanche of left-wing eco-warrior accusations of your intent to destroy the planet. How will you respond to those critics? The answers you will need are here. No doubt you are well indoctrinated in the official science that holds that humans are principally or wholly responsible for climate change. Real science tells an entirely different story. We're in so much trouble because too many politicians prefer to remain willfully ignorant of the real science. Such willful ignorance in people to whom we look for leadership is inexcusable and unforgivable. Will you choose to be enlightened? Between now and next election, will you find the courage and wisdom to replace the official science of climate change with the real science in our publicly funded school system? If you pay taxes or hydro bills in Ontario and you wonder why you're paying so much and whether the costs are truly necessary and beneficial, the answers are in this book. Only through true understanding of the issues can you expect to reasonably judge whether you're getting good value for your money. Beyond that, the book is chock full of information that should be common knowledge to every high school graduate. Unfortunately, very little of it is taught in our school system. Worse still, some of what is taught is just plain and simply wrong. And that's where we get the common ignorance from, right? We do not teach students how to think in the Ontario public school system. If we did, that would be educational. Instead, we teach them what to think that goes by any number of terms, indoctrination, propaganda, programming, brainwashing, but whatever term you prefer, it is not education. The proof is in this book. The real science is what it is. I'm simply the messenger. 
So that's the basic message from Dave Plum, author of Inconveniently Screwed, and who, by the way, was also a Freedom Party candidate in the last provincial election. So here's a carbonist thought to leave you with. Suppose it was true that humans are increasing the CO2 level on the planet. Then we should be rewarding ourselves, not punishing ourselves, don't you think? <laughs> well, be sure to reward yourself by joining us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Montana, you've got an extra 30 seconds to cover the flooding of the Monongahela River. Um, I would love to cover that. I would, but I don't really think that fits under the jurisdiction of weather. It's a flood. She can't say Monongahela. You can't say Monongahela? I just can't wrap my mouth around it. Shut up, Gary. <laughs> hey, what if I gave it a nickname, like, like, the mighty M is flooding? <laughs> It'll be fun. Yeah, people love to have fun while they're loading cats and photo albums into rowboats. <laughs>